The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Micah chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Houston. Well, um, I don't know if you, uh, what shows you watch uh, on television, what's your kind of thing is. Hopefully, uh, maybe you'll be watching Super Bowl if that's your thing today, um, or commercials, and then there happens to be a game on if you're that kind of person. Um, But, uh, you know, over the last, gosh, it was interesting during the, uh, especially COVID time when we're all cramped in our homes or wherever we were, apartments, uh, what we watched, and especially when we emerged and kind of were like, hey, we watched this, we watched that. One of the shows that really gained major notoriety because of how uh, positive it was is a show called Ted Lasso. And uh, man, people even started dressing up like Ted Lasso for Halloween and stuff. And it's about a coach who, um, who's a, you know, a coach of a, fo- a small football team in Kansas, becomes a head coach of a, a manager of a uh, soccer team in England, UK. And it, it, it was funny because this show was really Jason Sudeikis. And if you've, I, it's, it's a great show. It has some rough parts to it, just to uh, watch or beware, but I, I've really enjoyed it. Um, but it really um, demonstrates the power of the positivity uh, because it gained all sorts of awards and um, some people were like, why? And uh, it, because it really came out at a time when we were all just in despair. I don't know about you. Uh, we were all just like, I can't watch another show that's just intense drama. This was one of those shows that just kind of spread cheer. And um, it's interesting because the, they have the third season about to come out. 
And uh, the third season, the last season, they said is going to be the final season. But uh, in People Magazine, uh, they were interviewing Brett Goldstein, who actually plays uh, Roy Kent in there. He's actually one of the major writers. And he talked about it this way. I thought this was really interesting, what he said. He said, the nice part of the show is about people trying to be better, and that's unusual. Our public discourse, especially on social media, is terrible. It is now normal for people to be horrible to each other. Listen to what he says here. Our show shouldn't be as refreshing as it is. That says more about the world it was brought into. I've got more stories about people being lovely than about people being a nightmare. You know, we're starting a new series today, and uh, I, this is typically actually what we do in our church. We, we take a book of the Bible or uh, lengthened chapters, and we walk through them together, and um, we, we enjoy doing that. And we're looking at the prophet Micah, and one of the things about Micah as a prophet is, and you probably heard some of this, it's actually given by God through this prophet to a specific situation and time that it came into. So that there was so much going on behind this, and we're gonna unpack this over the next few weeks, but even a little different than some of the other prophetic books, and it's considered a minor prophet, not because of its importance, but because of its length. But that Micah actually begins in in verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth, which is actually different than most of the prophets. Most of the prophetic books begin with, naming a prophet and by their family or by their father or by their heritage. This one actually is by where he's from. It's unusual. It's by a location. And then lists three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which well done, Houston, reading all these fun names. Some of you will ask to read in the future and you'll enjoy reading some of these names too. But all of these names in which put it in a specific time and place that God's word was brought into in order to bring something out of. And it's interesting that, you know, as Ted Lasso, it shouldn't be as refreshing as it is. In some sense, the opposite, what this is doing is mining out for us a specifically written for the people of God in the 8th century that we're dealing with stuff that is so hard. And what, one of the questions we want to ask as we look into it is, what did this really mean for the original hearers? What did they receive it? Because it's really easy for us to quickly jump into a passage and go, what does this mean for me today? And if you do that, you can miss a lot of actually what God is speaking of. Because if you heard it, this is a passage of judgment. And in fact, that's what Micah's book is about. It's actually a cycle of number of things, and it teeters, and you'll hear this from week to week, of judgment, forgiveness, judgment, forgiveness, and goes back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes you'll read it, and you'll hear things, and you're like, what is going on? Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, the, the theologian, said this about the prophets, and I actually thought it was very funny and very Martin Luther to say about this, and maybe you'll feel this way. He said, the prophets, they have a weird way of talking, kind of like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, they ramble off from one thing to the next, so you can't make head or tail or see them or know what they're getting at. Well, if you heard that, you heard about jackals, ostriches, different cities. We're going to walk through this together and understand that. But why does this book first come perfectly situated from God's mouth through the prophet Micah, to their situation then, 
And then how does it to us now? So we're going to look at this in two ways. We're going to talk about the judge, the character of the judge here, and who is the judge that is shown. And then also, what is the reaction from those receiving the judgment? So the character of the judge and the reaction of the judgment. Um, And and what I want us to notice as we do this, you actually are entering into a courtroom. That's what most of the prophetic books do. They call you to enter into the courtroom. And we get first to see the character of the judge. Appropriately, Micah's name means who is like God. And you'll notice, even if you ever read the prophets, their names are often uh, very well correlated to the prophetic book that they bring. Almost like if you're watching uh, comedians in cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, he picks the perfect car for the perfect comedian, and it kind of fits and blends well. God does that perfectly with this, the prophet to where he is sending them in that situation in time. And he begins this way in verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. This is exactly why Micah's name means who is like God. Because the first thing, when you hear the word judgment, you might think, and maybe especially if you're here and you're new in church, or maybe this is your time back in, or maybe you've heard this phrase said to you before, who are you to judge, right? (laughs) It's a good question. Even if you're here and maybe church has been a part of your life, I I would submit to you, we still live in a posture of kind of like, who are you to judge? And especially when it comes to God. Just this week, (laughs) I got a ticket uh, because I failed to do registration. Actually, my wife got a ticket and she called me and said, hey, we really haven't finished the registration. Uh, I got it for one car. I did one, but you got to do both, right? To complete the process, you got to do both. Um, so I failed to do that. I go in, I take the ticket, I did the registration, got the new sticker and new license plate for the, our other car. And, um, <clears throat> and the woman immediately says to me, so do you want to fight this in court? You, you want to take this? And, I, and, and my brand, I'm like, yeah, can we do this? And she starts rattling off, well, what, what, and I, and I, you know, my confidence started going down and down and down. But that is the question. When you enter into this courtroom, the question becomes, how do the people of God react to that? How do they react to God bringing this judgment? Because first we have to see, and it's not just his judgment that comes, it's actually his person. It's his character. Because this is a judge not like any other. It's not just like going in any courtroom and saying, who are you to say? But we get to see who he is. A little bit of background of where we are in this place. Many of you may have heard of the kingdom of, of you know, Israel and that you've heard of kings before like David and Solomon. Maybe even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, these are names that have come to you and you're like, oh yeah, I know that. But the, the kingdom used to be one united kingdom. Uh, David being the one who kind of ushered this in, his son Solomon who held that peace and held it together. But once Solomon died, the kingdom was torn apart into a northern and southern kingdom. And you hear it discussed here as when it says, is it not Samaria, which would be the capital of the northern kingdom? Or is it not Jerusalem, which was the capital of the southern kingdom? And these kingdoms, which once held prosperity and wealth together, now split apart to try and do that individually. So a number of these kings that are even listed are from certain places. 
And one of the places that they're at in this 8th century BC is thinking with all the wealth, with all the prosperity, they have been living off of old relationship with God. They thought, you know, there's this thing called a covenant where we have this relationship with him, but yeah. And God comes out as a witness against them. It's very profound. It says, I will come out as a God, the Lord God be a witness against you in this courtroom. He's not only the judge, he's the witness to say, you've taken this relational dynamic between us and you have decided that you don't need it anymore. See, it's not a contract. Thinking about God's judgment can easily be like cold and calculated. But the question is, how did they get to here? It wasn't just one choice. It wasn't just one thing that they decided. They decided not just to do something bad. That's typically what we think judgment is. Yes, God judges sin and things that we do, even as it was read in uh, the confession. But really, the heart of it is their relationship with him. See, the whole prophetic book in any case, Micah's or any of them that you read, you'll read about the court case, not of a contract that God has with his people, but a covenant, meaning that they took vows of relationship, almost like a marriage. You read even in here of prostitution. Well, that's what it's talking about. Not Not just real, which it was, but also spiritual. But that the people took vows, they broke them. God comes in as the witness to say, you have broken these vows, now you need to face the consequences of bro- breaking these, these faithful marital vows with me. And who is the one to deliver them? That's the prophet. The prophets were not well liked <laughs> because they were, sorry friends if you are this, the lawyers of God's word to this. And they brought God's word towards them saying this. And they got to this place because it wasn't just one choice or they did one bad thing. And many times we ask that question, is God just waiting to punish me? Because I just did. We look at thing after thing in our lives and think, uh, we did something wrong. But that's not how God's judgment works. It's always within relationship. It's interesting, I was listening to a podcast um, with a guy named Kerry Newhoff. I don't know if you've heard that name before. He, he does like a leadership podcast and he brings in people. And I have mentioned this name, uh, Andy Crouch. He had this guy in. And they were having a really interesting discussion about um, the effects, after effects of living in a COVID period, that, you know, the lost year, so to speak, and more. And the way that they described it and, and how they termed it was these illustrations of was what we're experiencing now with all the after effects, and they, they listed off the economic disparity that we have right now. Many of you feel that. The educational gaps that, are, that just continue to show, and we're already there, but just were made a lot wider. And then, of course, the relational dysfunction that we have that's way worse than it was. But the way that they talk about it, they said, are we in a blizzard, a winter, or an ice age? And I thought that was really well put. What are they, they say, are we in a, just a blizzard? Is this just like a blip on a screen and we can just get correct things and get them back to normal? Is this a winter? Are we in a season where we're feeling like, oh gosh, it's a, we just got to weather it, endure it, get through it till spring? Or are we living in an ice age where what happened with us during those periods just manifested more of what was already there? It just flowered more into what we needed to see and haven't seen or don't want to see. 
And I think it's really well put for where the people of Israel are. Number of things that have happened, the fault lines in their relationship with the Lord and one another, we're going to get really practical as we look in this book because that's where the prophet goes. It's not just they, uh, they didn't go to church. <laughs> it was the way they, they handled their work. They handled justice with one another, civic life. The way that they handled their wealth. They were in a time of such grand prosperity that the upper class was so far apart from from anyone below it that instead of seeing their wealth as distributive, they held it. And justice and bribery got worse and worse and worse. The things that they attributed and wealth was always attributed to blessing from God was like they supplied, hey, we're blessed Sorry for anybody that isn't. See where it's going with this. The Lord comes as judge and says, I'm here. And when he comes on the scene, he doesn't just come out of any place. He come, it says, comes out of the temple. He comes out of, as it says, he will come out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. When my boys, I hear them in the next room and they cannot settle something. And I know it, and I'm just sitting with the tension of it, but yet I have to get up and go settle it. I have to get up and go settle it. And when I go in there, it better be settled. I hope. doesn't always get. But God comes out of his place. It intentionally puts the language of God could not wait. He did not sit back to let them figure this out, that justice was on their own, that he had to bring his judgment in as the true judge. And he, he introduces him entering into this courtroom from the holy temple out of his place to tread. And listen to even how creation itself, if that's not enough to know, not just the witnesses, how they should respond to him, to say, who who are you to judge? This is who to judge. Verse four, and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. That the most glorious, majestic parts of creation, the mountains. And I don't know if you're a person who loves that, but I remember hiking in uh, Utah. I'd never been there during the summer, never been to Utah. Enjoying this just two summers ago and being able to walk up on the mountains and seeing the majesty and feeling the rocks below me that were there far before I was. Things that exist and seem to be and creation would be the, the greatest and grandest and most powerful the mountains yet bow down when this judge enters the court they shake at their roots they melt like wax creation begins as it says to be undone because it recognizes its maker this is no ordinary judge this is God himself. And he's not just a judge that comes in position, but he's accurate. His judgment isn't like ours. It's incredibly accurate. Notice, when he judges here, it's not just that he has a temper and he reacts. It's always with wisdom. It's never disconnected. It's never detached. It's never flared up in some sort of rage as we get. It is perfectly connected to wisdom to achieve its exact end. 
It's accurate. It's surgical. It's beautiful. It's about making all things right. See, many of us can look at God and go, kind of like George Costanza did in Seinfeld when he was sitting with his therapist, and he said, I knew it. I knew God didn't want, want me to be successful. And his therapist said, but I didn't think you believed in God, George. And he opted for him to say, yeah, but I do for the bad things. For many of us, that may be what we think of God's judgment, but his judgment isn't for that. It's actually restorative. It's exactly what we were singing earlier, and it's accurate to where it goes. Notice Samaria, verse 5, the transgressions of Jacob for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, representing all of those nations? So that it addresses that and to that end. So much so that it's so specific even to say this, listen, when it says, therefore I will make Samaria heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones in the valley and uncover her foundations. Sounds kind of ominous, but this is what it's getting at. That Samaria particularly really thought of itself as founded. Its history was about its incredible opulence of a stone that it was founded on. Two of the kings, one of which you even can read about in Omni, who built like the foundation of Samaria itself up on a hill, used such incredible masonry that it was known as one of the greatest works in the ancient Near East. The king after him, Ahab, who you can read about if hear of the word Elijah. He was the one that butted heads with Ahab. And you can read about how Ahab took ivory and actually put ivory all over it, inlaid, covered, made it beautiful so that Samaria was this rich, opulent masonry covered in ivory for all to see wherever you went. God isn't just saying, I'm going to waylay you. He's saying, I'm going to get to the very foundation and root of what you believe you stand on. I'm going to come in a way that shows you that where can a vineyard be planted? Can a vineyard be planted in the middle of downtown Nashville? No. A vineyard can only be planted if things of the concrete are gone. He's talking about getting to so far into the root that a vineyard, that growth will only occur when I show you that you cannot stand on what you think you've built. That he can take it out. We've seen some of those pictures before, and they're sad, of Turkey and Syria and these things that are going on, that the devastation and difficulty of what, and when a building's brought to rubble, it's not even then that a vineyard can grow. It has to be even cleared out. God is saying that he has to get further deep into the roots of their life for it to be changed, and it's not something that is just to to be angry and show them and say, see, see what I can do? He's not flexing. He's saying, come back to me. He wouldn't say even plant a vineyard if he didn't want what his judgment is to be is restoration and relationship. But what destroyed it is the relationship. The way they looked at their opulence, the way they sought out other things. I remember asking my grandmother, years into after I was older, before she passed away, my parents divorced. And I remember asking her one time, 
looking at her and, and just, I thought, you know, I'm going to ask her, why do you think my mom and dad divorced? And it was so interesting, her answer. She didn't say things like, oh, this and that. She said, I think that they believed the money could get them through it. Now, I know there's all a lot more to that relationship than that. But of all the things that she chose to tell me why that relationship divided, why that marriage came to that end, is that their dependence on other things, their view of themselves and the way that their covenant relationship was no longer. This is where God goes. This is why it's not just the judge that comes out, but the reaction to the judgment is given to us in verses eight and nine. You would think maybe a prophet would be kind of stern. Listen to what he says. For this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Many of you in this room may have been a part of a church. Maybe this is old hat for you. (laughs) But I wonder where our hearts go when it comes to God's judgment. When we read things like this. And the question I have for us is, what is our measurement of God's judgment now? I think we could say it's the same as here. I think we read often of passages like this and we think, what is is the measurement for God? Are there things in my life? We either go to hard things in our life and say, is this God's judgment of me? Or we dismiss it altogether and say, "Mm." We re- watch people on TV look at things that happen overseas or in, even in our own country, and they dismiss it as, oh, this is God's judging us. What is God's measurement of judgment? It is always in his relationship to us. It is not flippant. It is not without wisdom. It is always within relationship to us. And here's how we know. His reaction, the prophet's reaction, is one of deep, deep lament. You know that God's judgment isn't just something you're cold and callous to, as if you say, those people deserve that over there, or that something you relativize and you say, maybe he's just not judging at all, when it hits you so deeply that it causes deep compassion, not only in yourself, but for those you don't even know around you. That when you see difficulty, because for the prophet, it goes deeper into him to say this is a part of his own soul. It's not just a word he throws out, it becomes him. Even when it starts in verse two, it says, hear you peoples, all of you. That's not just one person, that's all. The word hear isn't just, hey, listen up. Hear is actually to take up. It's used over and over in the Hebrew scriptures to say this is something you, you hold, you keep, you hold within you, and that's exactly what he does. It's not like signs on the, I don't know if you're the, like me, I know every time I drive down 65 to the beach, you see plenty of signs that talk about judgment. You better turn or you burn, right? Like over and over, the same kind of thing. My favorite one still is the, the, guy, the little reaper 
There's somebody who took the time to like whittle a, 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 a Satan or devil with like a scythe or a pitchfork or something and put it on a thing, say, go to, the ch- go to church or the devil will get you. Is that how it works? Where do our hearts go with those kind of things? See, that's what the prophet is showing us is that the word doesn't just go out and say, you better. It lands home in him in a way that says he knows something more profound about this word. That God's judgment isn't just some cold calculated, get it in line. It's a relational piece of he is to destroy, to restore. To bring back. His judgment is held not as an impartial weighing of good and evil, but judging to bring us to himself. If you think about what is a prophet, and we'll talk about this a lot, I'm gonna, we'll talk about kind of the material. I don't want to do just a huge intro, but we'll farm that in as we go. What a prophet is in the Bible is not, I mean, sometimes we think of a foreteller, you know, he tells the future. A prophet in the Bible wasn't just a foreteller. They were actually a foreteller. It meant they brought the word of God out and towards, not just to say, but so that it bore on their own hearts. That the prophet took it into themselves, and God's word was a deep, profound experience that they lament. They lament the fact that judgment is real, that that sin is real. And don't we all know that? See, as Christians, we should long, as people of God, we should long for God's judgment because it's not the judgment that everybody said to us growing up. It's a judgment of saying God wants this world to be made right. And that evil whether within or without, is actually addressed. And that's what the prophet was. Is our heart shrinking in the way that we think of judgment? Is our heart shrinking in the way that we long for evil to be expunged? Because the way it does without us banging our head against the wall or becoming numb to it or calloused, even as the people of God did in Micah's time, and that's exactly what happened. The evil around them, they just dismissed. Whether it was in them or outside of them or to their neighbors, they didn't enter in. They didn't care. Because to them, they had what they needed. It's all about me. God's justice is to restore, is to bring I had somebody ask me one time, uh, one of you, asked me one time, why, why, does, why do you, you talk about lament in our church? Like, why is that a theme sometimes in our church? Seems like we, we, we talk about it fairly often. Uh, one, yeah, because the Bible does. <laughs> but two, it's because we really believe that if we understand that sin is real, that the truth of the gospel, the good news that comes, means that you can't make room for love unless you make room for others to meet you in that. To meet you in the depths of sorrow. What moves to revival 
You know that word revival? Maybe you've heard it before. We get images of like people going crazy in tents or something. That's not actually what happens. What a revival is, what seeds the soil of revival for us to move as people of God, to grow in ourselves and see the good news of Jesus move, is that we're humbled, that we lament, that we see ourselves in the mirror of who, not what we see ourselves as, as terrible, but actually what God sees us as and why he brings judgment, because he loves because he brings that in. It's to make us real. You know, we see this in the Old Testament. Some of us may go, well, it's the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 19, in the, in the New Testament, it's one of the Gospels, Luke accounts Jesus in a really profound moment. And he does this. He enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, triumphal entry as it's called, where he comes in, into Jerusalem, not riding on a, on a horse with a sword to bring swift, but riding on a donkey, lowly and humble. And the people around him are, are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, highest. They're praising him. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the people you would think would get compassion judged. They're, ju- they're saying, no, 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 don't, tell, don't say that to him. And you know what Jesus says? The weirdest thing. Okay, you can call them, their, you can shut their mouths, but the, if you do, these very stones will cry out. The rocks will cry out. What do they recognize? Who's come out of his place? You know what happens the very next, after the triumphal entry? The verse says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. What is Jesus showing us? He's showing us what the true heart of God does. He's showing us that the difference of what we've always believed God's judgment to be and what it is, is very different. See, we actually get to see on this side of Micah's life what Micah was preaching to. It says in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says, long ago and in many ways, and through our fathers, the prophets, God spoke. But now, he has spoken to us by his son. And how does he speak? There's no other table that is set like this, with body and blood. See, this actually is a table of judgment. If you think about it, the judgment is at this table. When you you think about what's happening, body and blood is, is at this table. That's why we say Jesus set this, but he didn't set it with yours or mine, he set it with his. The one who weeps over the city. And guess what? He didn't just stop by, you know what happens right after he weeps over the city? He enters into the temple and he flips all the tables. We think of Jesus always calm and chill. He goes in there, he flips the tables. He says, you've made the house of God a den of thieves. Why? Because what happens at this table, where you understand judgment transforms how you take any sort of justice, care, mercy, and love and compassion out of these walls. If you think you can handle judgment yourself, this table will not be meaningful to you. 
It will not transform you. But if you come to this table and say, judgment has been taken from me, and it humbles you, and you taste the mercy that is yours in Jesus, you will be transformed. This is why Martin Luther, the one who said the prophets are so confusing, do you know what he said about the cross? He said, justice and mercy is fused at the cross. So that you don't have to live out juggling. What's the measurement of God, how God sees you? Let's ask that question as we leave. This is the question. What is the measurement of God's judgment towards you? This. You cannot look to anything else but to his son. That is how he measures his relationship to you. It is only by him. Thanks be to God. Let's stand together.